What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Nikki Glaser Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glaser Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glaser Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glaser Podcast to start listening. The volume. It's Jenkins and Jones presented by FanDuel. The NBA season is kicking into gear and there's no better place to get in on the action than FanDuel. The app is safe, secure, and easy to use. FanDuel has exclusive offers, boosts, and more all month long. When you win, you'll get paid fast. FanDuel has lots of ways to play like the spread, money line, over-unders, team totals, player props, and so much more. Jump into the action at any time during the game with live betting and combine multiple bets from the same game in a same game parlay and try out same game parlay plus. So download the FanDuel app today. Start making every moment more. Disclaimer must be 21 and over in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG. We're excited to welcome on our guests for this week's Jenkins and Jones and Friends to Sean Reed of The Athletic, his brilliant podcast, Between the Lines, a podcast about race and diversity in the NFL, just wrapped up on March 7th. You can find that either in The Athletic's football feed or it now has its own feed wherever you get your podcasts. Um, I know Tyler and John and I have all been listening to it and really enjoying it. To Sean, thanks so much for making time to come on the show, man. We appreciate you. Thanks for having me, y'all. Appreciate that all that promo right there. <laughs> yes, sir. We're professional now. We just get all the promo out, you know. We bang it, and then boom, yeah. we're done. Now we can talk like human beings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Get 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 to the shits now. Get to yeah. The yeah. 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 So um, so Tashawn, man. First off, like, bro, I just want to congratulate and commend you on this project. It's really fucking incredible. Um, you mentioned you put eighteen months of work into this, and like, bro, I just hope, you know, you're taking some moments here and there to just be proud as hell of yourself for this, you know, so give yourself some pats on the back. Yeah. But um, so, you know, it's it's such a thoroughly extensive project where, you know, you really dug into like the specifics and, you know, the details and the timeline and, you know, the minutia of the NFL's, you know, spotty history in regards to diversity hiring. Um, You were so detailed in your reporting and your storytelling here and. While you were like, you know, laser focused on the NFL here, the project also feels like while the, the NFL is under the magnifying glass here, if you zoom out, it's so much bigger than the NFL. It's like an, you know, allegory of the black experience in the corporate world, um, the black experience trying to climb the socioeconomic ladder in this country. It's like, you know, the NFL is what's being discussed on a micro level here, but those are the issues that's being addressed on a macro level. And it was done exceptionally well. So I'm just curious, you know, as to what motivated you from a personal standpoint to take on such, you know, an expansive and such an important project? Yeah, I think it's more of like a life story for me. Like, obviously, anybody watching this on camera, they can see I'm I'm black. Um, But I I grew up in Ferguson, Missouri. Um, I have older parents. Like, my dad, he just turned 75. um, So he was born 
into Jim Crow, grew up in the civil rights movement, um, you know, grew up in the projects in St. Louis. Um, his family um, were sharecroppers from Arkansas. Um, and, and so he had a lot of context in terms of the shit that black people have been through in this country. And then my mom, um, she grew up in Arkansas in the 60s and 70s. And so she had a very uh, direct relationship with, with the South and how things, you know, how to get down down there. And so I already had that that baseline, you know, context for what being black in America could mean. You know, not that that's everybody experience, but some of the ugly side that was in the past and that, that was still going on. Um, and so I always was very aware of what it meant to look like me in this country. But I will say that, that living in Ferguson, which is about 70 percent black, um, in the area that I did, like, I never really noticed it to be an issue for me personally, because everybody around me was black. All my friends were black. Most of the people I went to school were black. And so like, there weren't really, there wasn't racial tension. Like I didn't have like issues with being ostracized because of how I looked. And so it wasn't until 2014 when I was getting ready to go to college. Um, and Michael Brown got killed, um, about two weeks before I went to college. And like, I didn't know him personally, but like we went to the same high school, our freshman and sophomore years. So we had a lot of mutual friends and um, kind of word kind of spread quickly what was going on. And then kind of just seeing, you know, it wasn't the first time, obviously, that somebody black had been killed by police in the questionable circumstance in St. Louis. Uh, but seeing the way that the community reacted in terms of the protests, seeing the way the police reacted in terms of the force that they used and then how that was covered on a national scale. Again, this is you know, going into college where I had already decided to go working in journalism um, and pursue that at Mizzou. Um, and so I saw how the industry that I was about to go into talked about people that looked like me. And so I kind of made the decision then pretty early on that, like, you know, if I did make it um, to the point where I had a, a journalism career that I wasn't going to cover it how most people covered it at the time and what was sort of the origin of the Black Lives Matter movement that's become very, you know, corporate now and, and kind of you know, trendy now. Um, and so like, whether that was whatever league I covered, um, whether I stuck with sports or didn't like race was always going to be something that was part of my coverage and more specifically, you know, the issues that black people face, um, and not just issues, but like our culture, um, just blackness in general was always going to be something that was a part of what I do. And so just kind of the natural progression, like I've always written about race, whether that was when I was covering Florida State um, football in my first job with the athletic in 2018 and 2019 to being on the Raiders beat since 2020. Um, and so it's always been a part of my work. And this was just sort of like the, the most fully fledged version of that coming through um, and kind of a new medium for me. You know, I'm mostly a writer, but this podcasting world um, is kind of a new space. And then it gave me a new challenge to kind of tell a familiar story, but do it in a different way. I was around 30 when Mike Brown died. You know what I mean? Like having lived in Ferguson, like made runs to that liquor store a trillion times that he was at. You know what I mean? That quick trip was a quick mm -hmm. trip that I went to. I went there even more than the liquor store. You know yep. what I mean? Like uh, mm -hmm. you talk about Mike Brown's death and how it affected you. You know, I influenced you. You know what I mean? Um, but you were like born and raised in Ferguson. You know what I'm saying? With the school, with the man. Like a lot of connections there. Like, um, how was that experience for you at 18? Like I said, I was 30 and I feel like there's, for me, there's mm. more before Mike Brown and after Mike Brown. Like that, I remember mm. talking to Tyler, we would joke about how our, how our, you know, generation was trash. You know I mean? We didn't like, we like, I think that woke us up. Like, like, you know, like that woke us mm. up. We approached like, oh, we reminded the shit ain't sweet. We got, there's a lot of work to do and we need to, we need to be a part of that. You know what I'm saying? And I remember the streets and like the, the city feeling like, like almost that street in particular felt foreign because it felt like it was occupied. Like it felt like red October, you know, mm -hmm. to me, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. um, how did, how did that, how did that feel to you? I was confused, honestly. Like I just didn't think that that could still happen. Like in terms of the, just the really militant response that the police, um, you know, came with to that protest, which was mostly peaceful. I know everybody talks about the rioting and all that, mm -hmm. but that was later on initially, even when it was just completely peaceful, they were still acting like that and tear gassing and, mm -hmm. you know, beating people up and all kinds of things like that. And so, like, again, like I had my parents who had lived through that kind of stuff, but I was like, yo, that's, that's 40 years ago. Right. Like, there's no way that could still happen now. Right. Like, I knew, was, I, knew I, I, ain't, I ain't, you know, I had no illusions that like racism was gone. Like, but like for me, like in my context at that point, like since I'm 18, like Barack Obama was in office. I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, we got a black president. Like, 
this can't possibly, like, something like this just can't happen. So when it did, I was just, like, in shock, I think. And, like, it took a while for me to really, like, accept, like, even throughout the, once the, once the uh, I guess it wasn't a trial, but the um, the grand jury um, kind of deliberation mm-hmm. um, before they ultimately, like, said that they weren't going to charge Darren Wilson. Um, like, when that came down, I was just like, I cannot believe that they're really going to let him, like, get away with this, mm-hmm. you know? And so that for me was very eye-opening um in the sense of like what america still was and like it and, you know i, I also kind of got a uh kind of prepared me for what was to come when i went to mizzou because my it was very tense on campus because mm-hmm. a lot of black people at mizzou are from st louis yep um and so my sophomore year um shit just kind of started to pop off like there was like a white student that carved like a swastika in a bathroom made out of feces like it was like they were riding around in hoods and pickup trucks and throwing bricks through dorms where mostly black people lived at and they knew that they lived there. They were like coming up on black women um, in downtown Columbia, Missouri, and like ostracizing them. And we had a uh, a black student body president at the time who was gay and they mm. pulled up on him and yelled all kinds of slurs and things like that. And so eventually it reached a breaking point um, and sort of some of the uh, these, these students kind of formed this group on campus, sort of pushing for formal ag- formal acknowledgement and formal change from the university because they really just kind of disregarded it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, it kind of ra- rapidly evolved to the point where, like, the, the Mizzou football team was like, we're not going to play unless, mm-hmm. you know, something changes. And then that's when everybody kind of descended again. And, like, you got CNN flying out and people protesting in, in the quad, which we called it, and, like, campus was like we were getting like bomb threats and shooting threats on like get yak from like people saying they're gonna come shoot up every n-word they see on campus mm-hmm. like like we had like a, situ- a situation where like we had to go to the black culture center on campus and like people were so scared that they didn't want to go to class that we would send a group of like 10 to 15 black people to walk people to class and then go get them after their class and walk them back so it was like i went from ferguson to basically ferguson at my college um and then trump got elected and everything that came with that and so <laughs> for me it was just like oh like this is this is like a crash course of just like all this stuff coming at me at a very young age while i'm like trying to figure out what i want to do with my career and like everything like that and so i think just having that that influx really shapes you know what type of journalist i ended up becoming once i got started in this business i, wonder, I wanted i wanted to ask you a little one, bit one about one second, Mike, i got a question about, right. about I, I just I, I just wonder how your parents reacted to it because like I remember like being there in the city and like my like a lot of people were like don't go out like a lot of the older people who had fought through it mm-hmm. are like don't stay inside right. stay inside you know what I mean and you were active I was active out there like how was it what is what was that experience like with with your parents and like the elders you know what I'm saying that you know just wanted the best for you yeah you know? yeah and so like my I kind of had a unique experience with that because my dad um, he at, he was retired by then mm-hmm. um, but growing up. Like his main job was he was like a CEO at the county jail um, downtown mm. or not downtown in Clayton. Um, and so like he knew like like he knew from his life experience, but also like he knew the ins and outs specifically of how the St. Louis Police Department operated mm-hmm. and how they handled things like this. And so it was like a hard stop with him. Like, nah, <laughs> like, <laughs> don't go down there at night. Like, get if you're going to do something, get the hell out of there before sun goes down. Mm-hmm. Like. And that's, it's kind of ironic because like when my dad was my age, um, Ferguson was a sundown town. Mm. And so there were like some parallels there. So for him, I'm sure he just had, it it was a fear for him because he was like, I mean, like I said, Michael Brown was my age. We went Mm -hmm. to the same high school. We were both, you know, graduates that same year. So for him, it's like, that's not happening to my son. And same thing with my mom. Mm -hmm. And so like, they just wanted to make sure that like, I didn't put myself in a situation because like I'm, I'm, I'm not like a super uh, confrontational person, but mm-hmm. like once I get there, I get there. Mm-hmm. And so I can say some things and maybe do some things that I shouldn't, especially at that age when I was 18, 19, like, you know, just naturally more like you don't think too much. For sure. um, and so they were very like protective and kind of concerned and worried about it. Um, obviously I, I'm all right, but uh, you know, that was something that I definitely Heard of, not, not just them, but also I have four siblings, and they're all older. I'm the youngest. Mm-hmm. Like my my youngest sibling outside of me is 38, um, and so they all were also very protective and making sure that because I was really the only one of us that like was born and raised in Ferguson. Mm-hmm. Like all of all the other ones had like bounced around, different, lived in different places, but like that was my home, mm-hmm. and so like they knew that I had like a different level of connection to what was going on, and so. Mm-hmm. It was it was very much like a thing. Not that it was about me. Like obviously it was much bigger than me, but like mm-hmm. my family was very intentional about like making sure my head was on straight with that mm-hmm. whole thing. 
I'm just curious about you're talking about your life experiences growing up. And I think for, you know, a long time, especially in sports, but in all journalism, there was this idea that um, it was like becoming a priest or something, right? Like, okay, this was your life up until this point, And then now you're a journalist. You're going to take off your ethnicity. You're going to take off your, how you grew up socioeconomically. And now you are like an objective like circle of light or something, right? That like is just processing news and and reporting it back out. And your generation, and I know you you went through the Sports Journalism Institute, I believe, right? Yeah. And I I mean, everyone I've worked with, we've we've been lucky enough to hire graduates at that institute. I mean, really a strong thing across everyone I've worked with who came out of there is your generation is really starting to turn around that incredibly idiotic idea of like putting aside who you are as a person in order to do the job of reporting. Right. Um, is that something like that's a, and that's a, this is really more of a question, I guess, for the end of your career, not the beginning of it, but is that something you take pride in and are conscious of that? Like you and your generation are sort of starting to make that really, really big change for us as a, as a country. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I went to the Missouri School of Journalism, so it doesn't get too much more about a book than that um, for people that aren't familiar familiar with it. Um, but so there was, I mean, during that time when the protests started my sophomore year, they were very intentional about telling my journalism students, like, don't participate, like, stay objective, don't post anything on social media. And I, you know, I was like, fuck y'all. Because <laughs> my thing is, like, the first thing I was in this world was black. And so that's what I'm going to be when I die. Like, that's what I'm going to be this whole way through. And so I'm not putting that to the side for anything, let alone my career. And so I made that decision early on. And, like, you know, I mean, at the time I was a student, so it wasn't like, you know, I was making some bold proclamation or something. Like, we don't, you don't even formally get into the J school until your junior year. Mm. But when I did get into it the year, coming off, coming off of all that stuff my sophomore year, I was like, yo, this is, this is how I'm operating. And so if y'all don't like it, don't really care. Like, this is how it's going to be um and so like even like my first uh internship like it was working for the st louis american um <laughs> which is a, a magazine in st louis it wasn't sports related at all and i'm writing all these like criminal justice reform and like these like you know foundations and all. i was not at all like really like i did my, my, my sports journalism class and stuff like that but i was kind of like getting on like another track almost until i kind of like zoned back in um, when I did start pursuing pursuing things with the Sports Journalism Institute, um, my senior year, um, I got into I went through that program after I graduated that summer. That's when I really started like, all right, I, I still want to do sports. Let's hone in on this and, and really lock in. But I, like I said earlier, like that was still something like always in the back of my mind. It's like I'm still going to work this into my coverage. Obviously, you can't force it. Like and like when it's not there and like try to make it something that it's not. Like I don't believe in that. But when the situations do arise, which they will, because you know races is cannot be separated from journalism or sports or anything in this country because of the history of this country which mm-hmm. you know as much as people want to forget it like it's very tangible and, and still felt today um and so that's you know luckily having that having sji which you know kind of gave me that foundation of a lot of black and people black journalists and people of color and women and people that are you know from these marginalized groups um, gave me more comfort um and that being my approach and so like even my first job um, covering Florida State football, like um, that was when Willie Taggart was there, and he got fired his second season. Like he was terrible. Don't get me wrong. Like they were, they were awful. Like they <laughs> right, broke right. their broke their bowl streak. But he got fired, and I believe it was twenty one games. And like this is when the homeboy in Nebraska that used to play there was still employed, and a bunch of other terrible coaches. And like, um, like towards the end when he was about to get fired, like somebody posted on Facebook like this Photoshop picture of him like his face on a, on a lynching victim. Um, and like, there was just a certain side of it that people just didn't seem to want to talk about. And like, I'm at this time, I'm 23, I think 22, 23. Um, the only black person um, really that was on the beat of some prominence. And so I was like, I'm gonna talk about this. And like, if y'all get mad at me, so what? And so, um, and then that kind of carried over to, um, the summer of 2020, when I, I started on the Raiders beat in 2020, um, and obviously everybody knows what happens then. And so I wrote about race pretty candidly um, for the athletic and told some of my life experience. And then 2021, when John Gruden popped out as like the greatest bigot of all time, like I was, you know, critiquing him for doing that. And Mark Davis 
after the George Floyd verdict, he like tweeted out, I can breathe. And I wrote that he was wilding out for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, so it's, it's been something that it's, it's just always um, been a part of my career and it's been very intentional. And I don't, and even outside of my work, like on social media, like I'm very <laughs> open about discussing what I think about many things, but also race. And that's mm-hmm. never, that's never going to change. And so if a company wants me to, I'm just not going to work there and I'm, I'm fine with making that, that decision. Real one. Um, you know, I mentioned how, how detailed and how comprehensive, you know, all the research that you put into this project was. And, you know, there was a lot that I learned here. There were a lot of, you know, eye openers, you know, for me listening to this. And one was, you know, I realized that I was not all the way completely familiar with the origin of the Rooney rule, right? Like I wasn't, of course, I wasn't naive enough to think that the NFL did that shit out of the goodness of their own heart. You know, I just always kind of thought that there were probably grumblings from, you know, within the NFL workforce. But, you know, you went into the history about how there was a, an outside group that did some independent research and had Johnny Cochran as lead counsel. So the NFL decided to get ahead of that shit because they knew a lawsuit was coming. Right. So, you know, that was an eye opener for me. I wasn't I wasn't quite aware of the specifics of that. So I'm wondering, like, you know, during all the research that you've done, um, you know, on this project, um, you know, what was like the biggest eye opener for you? I think for me, it was, it wasn't like one individual thing. It's just as I reported it out, like I just became more aware of like just how comprehensive the issue is in mm-hmm. terms of the NFL's race problem. Um, like we always point towards the owners um, for the lack of black head coaches, which they are obviously very capable, culpable um, for that being an issue. But it's like, it's kind of, it's kind of corny, but it's like, it's on everybody really. Like it's, the players, you know, because of the way that they've been suppressed, they don't feel comfortable using their their leverage and their power like a Colin Kaepernick did to try to push for change. Like, that doesn't really happen that much, even now. Um, amongst the coaching ranks, um, once we do have black head coaches that get in some spots, a lot of times they don't hire black coordinators or black quarterback coaches or promote them to positions that lead to head coaching jobs. Um, black GMs, a lot of times, they hire white head coaches. Um, and promote white people throughout their their support staff. Um, obviously, you know, owners there ain't no black people there, but um, the owners, you know, we all, we all know what, what what their issue is um, in, in terms of this and, and why they behave that way. And then me as media, like, ain't that many black reporters out here either, <laughs> which mm-hmm. I don't know if people, you know, keep that in mind all the time. And, um, you know, a lot of these publications, it's starting to change now with like the summer 2020. Like I said, it's going to be trending now, but historically, it's something that you you didn't really cover because of that old objective mindset, like, oh, that's politics, that's going to make us lose our readership and all that kind of shit. And so, like, it's on us, too, to make sure it's a constant conversation and not just something that we talk about during Black History Month, during those glorious 28 days. And, you know, when, when the hiring cycle is up or there's a lawsuit from uh, Brian Flores or, like, there's something or Colin Kaepernick happens, like, you can't, you can't just talk about it when it's a flashpoint moment that's going to get you a lot of clicks. Yeah. Like, it's got to be something that you talk about year round, like, you know, because it's, it's a year round thing. It's evergreen. Unfortunately, it's something that's always the case. Um, and so it takes it's going to take all of that, plus probably external pressure like lawsuits, the threat of lawsuits or sponsorship um, dollars being potentially stripped away. Like, you know, the best example of that is probably what we saw with the Washington football team, um, you know, with them changing their team name. That was because of sponsorship dollars. And so it's going to be something like there is no like quick one size fits all solution for this. It's not going to. It's going to take a lot of time. And it's, unless it's a comprehensive effort from everybody, it's just never going to change. And again, it's not an NFL exclusive thing. Like that's America. Like this mm-hmm. is what this country was built on. Like as much as people want to run from it, like it's a racist country and it's, it's built on systemic racism and slavery and stealing people's land that wasn't theirs. And like that is in our infrastructure. It always has been. And that's how it was designed. And so changing that isn't easy. Obviously, it's been in place for hundreds of years. Um, but the only way to do so is a collective effort um, and surge that's constant and doesn't waver. Because if it wavers, then you get all that shit starts to strip back and it starts to revert. And then you get in that cycle that never really ends. And so that's what I like. I kind of already knew that, but I just analyze because every episode, like episode one is um, kind of the historical context. And episode two is the players. Episode three is the coaches. Episode four is executives. And episode five is sort of taking a look at everything comprehensively. And so like getting into the granular details of how race impacts things at every level just gave me a greater appreciation for like how much shit actually needs to be improved and done for there to be sustained change, not just these, these brief, you know, glimpses of hope. You know, when we get like an 07 after Tony Dungy and Lovey Smith faced off in the Super Bowl, we have seven black coaches or 
right now, I think we have five black GMs or, or no, we have eight black GMs and five black team presidents. Mm-hmm. Um, but will that be sustained? Like, you know, mm-hmm. no, it's not unless, you know, those things that I mentioned change. And so um, I think that was really my biggest takeaway from this project um, throughout my all my time working on it. And that's, that's really kind of what I landed on um, in episode five at the end where I kind of gave them a monologue, um, just kind of giving my thoughts on, on everything. For sure. And, well, but, and if we if we could stay on, on the Rooney Rule for, for just a, a second more. Um, you know, I'm curious on, on your thoughts of it. You know, I know it's easy to get delusion with it, given it's underwhelming results. But I personally think it's still very much needed for a number of reasons. And, um, you know, I'll get into my reasoning why I feel that way. But I'm curious to hear on, you know, where you stand first. Yeah, I mean, like the premise of it is cool. It's just it doesn't have any actual backbone. Like if they break it, which they do every year, nothing happens. So, like, why would I stop breaking it? Like, there's no consequence. There's no checks and balances. And so it's like, it's a great rule in theory. But if you just let people break it and nothing happens to them, it's pretty useless. And so there has to be some sort of enforcement component. Like, you know, in these obvious situations where, like, clearly clearly it's a sham interview and they knew who they were going to hire from the jump. Hire from the jump and they're just interviewing a couple random black people just to say they did. Um, Like, there has to be some sort of recourse. And really the only time that happened is, I believe it was with, with the Lions that one year, um, where they got a fine. And even then the fine was like, you know, six figures. Like, I ain't shit to the NFL team. <laughs> like, they don't care about that. Yeah. And so, like, it has to be, like, some sort of actual, like, consequence that they would care about incurring um, to really make them follow that rule. Otherwise, it's just, like, a light suggestion, which yeah. obviously is not going to do anything. Okay. Um, so, where, where I'm at with the Rooney Rule, um, one, I think that, you know, a lot of people are hardwired to think that if a solution isn't absolute and doesn't comprehensively and holistically solve a problem, then that solution has no merit. And I just wholeheartedly absolutely disagree with that line of thinking. Um, the results of the, of the Rooney Rule are underwhelming for sure. It doesn't really have a lot of teeth, but I don't think you really put that onus on the rule itself. I think that, you know, the brunt of the blame should be placed on the people making these hiring decisions. Um, and secondly, I, th- yeah. I think that, you know, there are all types of hurdles that diverse coaches face and we need to you know um you know combat these hurdles at every step in the process and one of those hurdles is just getting an interview right black coaches and diverse coaches are not plugged into a lot of these networks that white coaches are hired from they're not in these you know good old boys networks that a lot of their white counterparts maneuver in and i just do not know how you you know you know combat combat that without the rune rule like how do you fix that how do you tell these 75 year old white owners that they need to embrace black people more in their personal life that they need to you know invite more black people to thanksgiving get them group chats with black people right like i just don't see a viable alternative and like i said i I see the flaws of the rooney rule clear as day but you know i think that falls on the people making the hiring decisions not necessarily on the rule itself well i don't think the rooney rule is going to do those things that, that you mentioned there. Like there is really no onus on them to build those relationships just because the Rooney rule exists. I think it has to be more so um, supplemental programs um, that are put in place, um, which they used to have. Um, something that Ron Rivera, who I interviewed for the series, he said when he was up and coming coach back in the 90s and early 2000s, they had this sort of kind of minority coaches summit um, where they had opportunity to meet with ownership and build relationships. And that's where he met the Spanos family who owns the Chargers. Um, and they ended up hiring him um, as a coordinator a couple years later. Um, and when he was interviewing for the uh, Panthers head coaching job, they called Jerry Richardson, um, who passed away. He, he called the Spanos family um, for recommendation. And they gave a good one because they had a relationship with him because he met them at that summit. And so, like, that's an example of, you know, that sort of relationship paying off. But then they took their program away. Um, they most recently they brought it back last year, I believe. Um, and so we'll see if that provides some different results. But it, can, it can't just be the Rooney Rule. Like you got to have formalized programs like that where they can network, not just with owners, but GMs, um, have coaches, other decision makers, um, and, and learn how to angle themselves towards these positions and make relationships. Because relationships is probably the biggest factor um, mm-hmm. when it comes to these head coaching hires. Like if you're you know running a billion dollar corporation. You're not going to hire somebody to effectively run it or the most the most important component of it that you don't have a good relationship with. Like, that's just stupid. Nobody would do that. Right. But if there's no nothing that, like, provides a forum for them to build those relationships with people that don't look like them and that aren't in their bubble, 
how would they ever form those relationships? And so that's where, to me, not just on the decision makers, not just the owners, that's where the league office comes in. Y'all have to create some more of these. And like I said, they're bringing some of them back, but you have to make sure that they're actually like effective and not just there for show and shake hands and kiss babies and take some pictures and post some shit online. Like it has to actually be like useful. Um, and so there's there's always more they can do. It can't just be the, if it's just a running rule. Like I said, it's, it might as well it's useless to me. Like it has to be supplemented by consequence if you don't follow it, and also supplemental programs that support it and lift it up, and you know help those you know required interviews for the head coaching jobs for the GM jobs be interviews with people that they actually know. Because if you just have them interview a bunch of strangers, they're not hiring those strangers. That's why the numbers are what they are now. And I can't really knock them for that. I can knock them for not making a better effort to go make the relationships. But, you know, like these people, they're rich, white billionaires. Like, what reason have do they have to get outside their, their bubble? You know, mm-hmm. and so unless you, like, make them, basically, they're not going to do it. And so that comes on the league office, which I know they don't have all the power. Like, ultimately, they work for the owners. And so that's where that kind of conflict happens. So, like, to a degree, the owners have to be willing to do it. Otherwise, it's just not going to happen. But I do think the league office um, can do a better job in, in steering them in the right direction. For sure. For- from from a creative standpoint, like with this project, how consuming was this? You know, I mean, it's so thorough, so well thought out. You know, what I mean, like the interviews, the context you add in the narration. You know, what I mean, I don't give a fuck about football, but I'm loving this. You know, what I mean, like it's, mm-hmm. you know, like like how was it put, piecing all this together? How consuming was it? What were your days looking like? Uh, I needed every one of those eighteen months. I'll say that for sure. <laughs> um, part of it was just. <laughs> Like a lot of it was just honestly that, that I didn't, I still had to do my day job, mm-hmm. you know, in a sense, like mm-hmm. the month I pitched, I pitched the podcast, I believe in September, 2021. And I officially started meeting with my producer October. And that was the month that John Gruden resigned. Mm. So that was, that was fun. You know, <laughs> so you had some, you had some shit going on my, that my, month is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like I covered the Raiders. I cover the Raiders, so like there's always something going on. <laughs> so like I can't not do my, I, I can't not do my job. So right. I can do that and do the podcast, and so like the first few months was mostly ideation, um, figuring out like you know how many episodes, what we want the episodes to be about, like what is the overall tension of the project, um, you know what's the format, how long do we want the episodes to be, who do we want to reach out to for interviews, how do we want to do those interviews, what are the interviews going to be about. And so it's just a lot of like prep, prep work, I would say, in the first few months. And then mm-hmm. we started interviewing people. And with a topic like this, um, you know, it's difficult to get people to talk on the record, which was the only option because it's a podcast. Like I can't, I can't, this isn't, right. this isn't like a story where I can make you an anonymous source mm-hmm. or anonymous quote. Like even if I don't say who you are, people don't hear your voice. Right, right, right. Who you are. So right. like it was harder to get yeses for this than like a, a written story, I would say um and then figuring out the scheduling and the timing so like the reporting process was another task in itself and then once i had sort of a good foundation of reporting then came something that i'd never done before which was script writing Mm. um zero idea where to start and so like i had to write the scripts for all five episodes um and that was sort of an evolving process of like you know i started with what i had and then as i did more interviews i went back and changed things and flipped things around and cut certain things um, and I have a producer that I was working with throughout all of this. And I, like I was doing this by myself, but um, I was doing, you know, most of the work on that front. And it was more so like getting some assistance along the way. Um, and then, you know, kind of coming into this year, I would say in January, um, that's when I like I felt like I was at a good point where I still was doing more reporting. But I felt like I was good enough with the reporting and where the script was to start voiceover. Um, ahead of, you know, our planned launch in, in February. And um, I had never done voiceover before. Like, I do a podcast. I have our Raiders podcast. I do twice a week during the season. But there's just a different, this is a different type of, of audio that voiceover is. Like, your voice inflection, your tone, the consistency sure. you have to have. Like, the, the recording setting. Like, I'm in my living room right now. And there I was in my closet in my bathroom. Um, with, not my bathroom, my bedroom with the door closed. Um, with my mic positioned a certain way um, to like make sure that like the acoustics around me and it wasn't echoey and all that kind of shit that I just never even like gave any thought to in the past. And so that was a process. And then when we started getting the, the, the episodes together, I was listening to it and I was like, I don't sound good enough. <laughs> and so I went and got a different mic and re-recorded the entire series wow. about wow. a week before it came out. Um so like I said, I need every one of those 18 months. Um, <laughs> yeah. It was a hell of a, a hell of a task, especially balancing, you know, like I said, my day job, which is t- would be tough regardless of what I cover, but especially 
covering the goddamn Las Vegas Raiders. Right, right. <laughs> uh, um, you know what I mean? So like, it was a lot. Like it, that made it more rewarding at the end, and more so seeing the response from my colleagues at the Athletic, other people in the industry, my friends, my family. Like, I, it was hard for me because the series came out over the course of a month, and mm-hmm. I was still in process. Like when the first episode came out. I was working on episode two. When that came out, I was working on episode three. When that came out, I was still working on four and five. And so it was hard for me to really like appreciate it or like say how I felt about it until it was all the way out. And like, I kind of sat back and like just kind of took it all in and all the reaction that I got. And that's like, I would say really the last couple of weeks is the first time where I'm like, man, that was pretty dope. And that's uh, <laughs> 18 months after I started it, you know? Um, so it's it's been a process for sure. Can I ask you a dorky technical question? Sure exciting um <laughs> i thought wait. it was a br- i thought it was a, a really brilliant decision to structure this sort of moving up the power structure as you did instead of doing like episode one the 60s episode two the 70s what went into that yeah. decision um and I, it sounds like you made that decision kind of like you said when you're doing the prep work for it but um, what went into kind of choosing to structure it that way so that it wasn't just a like, we're going to start way before anyone's thinking about it. you were able to incorporate kind of the history of all these different things in each episode. Yeah, I kind of viewed it as like an inverted pyramid. Cause I, like I said, I think we always start with ownership. We always go there directly with this issue. Like it's their fault. Like, uh, it's like starting with the players. People are probably like, why are you starting there? Like, it's not their fault. And so like, no, it's not. But like, you need to understand like, this is where it starts. This is the foundation. Like, this is why as further you go up, people get further away from this issue and care less. And this is why, you know, in episode five, we get a bigger, a better idea of why this is how it is right now. Um, and so that was kind of my, my thought process with it. Episode one is more of a, it's a pretty wide, wide ranging episode. Like it's more of history, history. It goes all the way up from, you know, the start of the NFL to, you know, Colin Kaepernick to, you know, today, basically, um, coming off George Floyd. And so that one's more of like a foundation table setter. But then from there, I kind of wanted to just like, all right, we're going down to the perceived bottom of the, the, the bottom of the perceived power ladder and going to work our way up just because I think that's kind of the opposite of what people expect. It wasn't just trying to be contrarian, but I think it like served the purpose of giving Con- every every step up you go, you have more context, more context, more context. So once you get to the ownership level, like, oh, I absolutely understand why this is how it is. At least that's what I was hoping people came away with it from. I guess, that's how I took it. No, for sure. Like um, like I said, okay. I, I thought yeah. I thought it was I thought it was a, a a really. It's not like when when the show was pitched to us, I was like, oh, that's a, obviously an interesting topic. Um, but I I was really sort of blown away by that structure. I thought that really like unlocked the whole way you reported through it for sure. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I, I want to talk about episode three. Uh, that particular episode, you know, stuck with me in a very unique way. In that episode, you discussed um, Clarence Sheldon, who was the uh, Chargers running back coach, worked his way up to their offensive coordinator during the Ladanian Rivers Gates era when they were one of the best offenses in the league. Right. And, you know, he had aspirations of being a head coach. And, you know, I had interviewed multiple times, but he ultimately retired at, I think it was 58, which is young as hell for a coach to retire at. You got like 15 more years in the tank at that age. And he retired because he had grown weary of fighting a battle to become a head coach that he felt he wasn't going to win. And, you know, I had mixed emotions about that. Part of me was, you know, just just so crushed at this, you know, football mastermind walked away defeated with so much more to give. And part of me, you know, actually respected and was happy for him, you know, that he was protecting his peace in this way. So, you know, this this episode was about Clarence Sheldon in particular, but, you know, it was also about how crushing the glass ceiling can be for black professionals, right? So, you know, with that, with that said, I'm curious if while putting this together, if there was like any story, any interview, any fact you came across that just kind of, you know, hit your emotions in a unique way like that story hit me. That was it. Because I, honestly, I did not know. I did not know who Clarence Shelman was yeah. when I started this project. I had zero idea who he was. Same here. A lot of that <laughs> it makes sense. It makes sense because um, I mean, for one, I was like twelve, I think, <laughs> when he became their offensive coordinator. Um, so I didn't really necessarily know who the NFL assistants were at the time. But mm-hmm. um, he was basically Eric Bieniemy before Eric Bieniemy. Right. Obviously, we all know who Eric Bieniemy is now. Like we're very aware because I think it's covered in a different way. But it was easier not to know who – if it was 10 years ago, it would be much easier not to know who he is. 
And that's because North Turner got all the credit for their offense. It was his offense. Um, it was these superstar players. And, like, so, like, Clarence Shellman was like, eh, he's there, but, like, he's not really – that's not – he's not responsible for any of that. You know, that's the way that it was perceived. And so uh, – and, and for I think his story, why it stands out for me is I think – you know, and I've written about, you know, the coaching issue before at the college level, at the NFL level. And I think people get sort of tired of hearing the same numbers um, and the same story arc every year over and over and over and over. And they kind of get desensitized to it. Mm-hmm. And that, and to the fact that these are like people, these numbers, like these aren't just numbers, like these are individuals with like emotions and families and, and things going on in their life. And I think Shellman brings that to light because he was like literally getting up to go to work in the morning and feeling shitty about himself mm. like like this he had millions of dollars he was making six figures he was a highly successful team like he could have rolled that shit out and kept going you know for like i said another 10 15 years and made even more money and been cool but like it was such a burden on him mentally that he literally could not do it anymore right and that's like we, we don't really get that you know when you just look at oh there's three black head coaches or four uh, technically um, but three who identify as black, like, all right, cool. It's the same number I saw last year and a year before that, a year before that, like, who cares? But it's like, when you get a story like that, <laughs> then it really brings it to light. You know what I mean? Like, like what these people have to go. And not that, not that everybody is like that. Like, you know, like I said, oh, I can't live with myself, you know, because this is taking such a burden on me, but that does exist. And there's probably more of those people than, than you would, you would think of. And it's not just coaches, it's executives. Um, it's players, um, you know, who, who end up in these situations where they feel like they're contained by the system and can't be themselves and speak out and, and, and get to where they want to go. I mean, like, I know we like forget it since, you know, we had a quarter, uh, a Super Bowl with two black quarterbacks, but like Doug Williams had to go through hell right. <laughs> to, to, to be the first black quarterback to, to win a super, be a, a starting quarterback on a team that won a Super Bowl. And so, um, it's something that I think his emotion and his passion, which I think you can hear in his voice, which is another thing like about this project that like, I think I learned, like there's just a different, um, feeling you have when you hear somebody say something and you can kind of feel their emotion versus yeah. like reading it on a page. Right. Right. Like, if you just read the quotes that he said in my story, it probably wouldn't hit the same versus like, if you hear his voice and kind of like the choppiness of it, and mm-hmm. you, can, you know what I mean? Like it just hits yeah. you in a different way. Um, yeah, like, so like that was, like, that was like, something like, yeah, yeah I was, I was going to say like, like Doug Williams, he just, you know, that was something else that, you know, you know, kind of, you know, hit me in the emotions when he was just talking just so matter of factly about his upbringing in rural Louisiana, where he's like, yeah, you know, I had to be home, you know, before sunset or I might get lynched, you know, basically. Right. And he, and mm-hmm. for sure that, that resonated in a way that when you hear it, it wouldn't, if you read it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And so that's hopefully that, you know, it's, it's not like. I wouldn't say it's inter- I wouldn't say it's like I don't know if entertaining is a word, but I think it just um, it kind of grips you a little bit more yeah. um, when you get that component of it that you just lose um, in some other mediums that there are out there. Sure. You tw- you have your age in your in your Twitter bio. You're 26. You young as hell, my boy. You feel me? You know what I mean? You can tell no wrinkles on that face. You know what I mean? It's nice and. Hot. Hey, I turn. Hey, I turn. I turn twenty-seven on Saturday. Oh, man, hey, happy belated, happy belated, happy belated, happy belated. Happy birthday. Yeah, he's still. You're still a good 10, 15 years yeah. away from the hokas with John. But yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, I don't know, man. The young folks. Some people fucking with the hokas. You feel me? I don't know. We got. We stay away from that. But anyway, bro, you you extremely successful. I know you went to Missouri. You know, J school, which is what like top two, top three in the nation, something like that. But like. It's top, top one for top sure. Top one, okay, there we go. Okay, you know what I mean? <laughs> top one. <laughs> yeah, but is there like, you know, we get a lot of listeners that are like trying to figure out, uh, no, it's no USC. Jackson <laughs> says Jackson. it's no USC. Yeah, they, yeah. They, they, they do all right in Missouri. Yeah. Yeah, USC's an entertainment uh, department, Jackson, yeah. not a journalism yeah. department. But I'm wondering like, you know, is there like, was there any particular things you think that, you know, was keys to your success or, you know, any advice you give to, we had a lot of people that are trying to figure it out. They'd be hitting, folk, hitting us all up about, you know, what they're trying to do with their lives. But is there anything like, you know, in particular you've done, you think that kind of was beneficial to you to be so successful, so young doing this important work you're doing currently? Yeah, I think it's, it's kind of a basic answer, but like my thing, I've always put, put working, you know, above all else. Like a lot of people, I feel like that are my age, we like to talk about what we can do, what we want to do. Like, I think I can do this. Like if you give me the opportunity, I can do that. It's like, yo, just go do it. It's like bust your ass. 
and get it done. Like I pitched this podcast to the athletic. They didn't yeah. come to me and ask yeah. me to do it. I knew I wasn't going to get no extra money for this or anything like that. But I was like, yo, I'm going to do this because I want to do it and see if I can do it well and push the boundaries of my career and become a better talent, I guess, overall. Or like, I don't just write about the Raiders. Like I write about, you know, the aces here in Vegas and sports expansion and the NBA and Mm -hmm. summer league and boxing and all these other things. Like I don't have to do any of that. Like I'm not getting paid to do any of that, but I do it because I know in the long run, when it comes to me getting to where I want to go, it's going to pay off. Like it may not be immediately when I want it to be or exactly Mm -hmm. how I want it to be, but I'm gonna get there. And like, that's the thing. I think people, when they don't get that instant gratification, they allow that to affect um, their grind level, mm-hmm. you know, as I like to call it. Like, they just, God, man, I didn't get what I want. I'm just go ahead and do my daily job and just do the bare minimum and get by so I can get up out of here. Like, that's not going to help you. <laughs> like, you got to bust, especially, like, if, if, if you're a person of color or a woman or both or some other marginalized group, like, we, we are not going to get given anything in any industry um, in this country or most countries probably, and especially not in the journalism world. Um, and that's something that SJI, the Sports Journalism Institute, really drove home for me um, with, with Sandy Rosenbush, who's a white woman, and Leon Carter, who's a black man, and Greg Lee is a black man who, who run that organization. And just the network um, of people that came out of there from, you know, Malika Andrews to Marcus Thompson to, you know, some others, you know, throughout the business, like, you know, you just learn, like, you got to bust your ass. Like, like, like it's kind of the old cliche, like, you got to, you know, Work, work twice as hard to, you know, get the same yeah. result, you know, as, as some of your, your other counterparts. And so that's my thing. Um, and it's like, you have to be consistent with it. You cannot waver. You cannot give them any like ounce of a reason to be like, see, I knew he was, you know, lazy or I knew that, you know, he didn't really want to, or, or she didn't want to go for it or they weren't serious about this. You cannot give them any room to like discredit you, you know, for the talented individual that you are. And so that's always been my mindset. And like, I don't really see that changing. Um, you know, and like, like I said, like it's still like I like I'm not not where I want to be yet. Like I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I still have a lot of work to do and places to go, but I feel like I'm on the right path because of that. Um, mm-hmm. And that's something I'm always going to keep intact. And that's another part of it is like once you start having success, you can't get complacent. Mm-hmm. Like you definitely want to appreciate it. I'm not saying like just keep going and keep going and going. Like you want to mm-hmm. like definitely be mindful of like where you've gotten, um, you know, wherever you happen to be. But you can't just ease up and relax because, again, that's where that just gives another opening for somebody to doubt you or, or say you can't do something. And so it just has to be like this constant quest, like almost a never ending quest to like continually, you know, improve and get better. Um, and the only way you can really do that is to work. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's my advice to really people of all ages, but particularly, you know, young people. That's good advice. Wise Tyler, words. you got a last oh, question? Yeah. Um, sure. Um. There was a quote from from Bomani Jones, shout out to the homie Bo, that I feel like, you know, if you had to pick just one quote, just kind of one thesis statement to to kind of, you know, encapsulate what the issue is here. I feel like Bo nailed it when he said, you know, something on the lines of um, the problem is, you know, white people fundamentally believe that black people are intellectually inferior and we're not going to make any progress until we address that, like paraphrasing them a bit there. Um so, you know, that was what stuck with me as as kind of, you know, I, I guess the thesis statement of sorts of this project. So I'm curious as to what you would say to Sean is kind of, you know, what you would say is like if you could boil it down to just a quote to, you know, something in your words, like what would you say is the thesis statement of this project? Um, I think the biggest thing is like the reason why all of this, you know, is what it is, is racism. Mm. Just got to be honest, like. You know, I'm not saying that everybody is a racist, but a lot of people that are causing this issue are either racist or they're okay, you know, continuing to live and thrive in a system that's built on racism, which you might as well be a racist at that point. And so, like, people don't like to hear it. It makes them uncomfortable. It's like, oh, I can't possibly, you know, why are you calling me a racist? Like, I I, I have black friends. And like, no, like, like, this is that's what it is. Like, that's literally the only answer. There is no other explanation because we've seen too many times that, like, when companies are diverse or, you know, there's a coaching staff or we're talking like sweet, sweet level stuff, it only makes you better. It only makes you yes. more money. Like, mm-hmm. let's look at, like I said, let's look at the Super Bowl. Patrick Mahomes is like the best quarterback I've ever seen in my life. And they used to tell him, people that look like him, that they couldn't play quarterback just because they have his skin color. 
imagine if they just didn't let Patrick Mahomes play quarterback. You know how fucking stupid that would be? <laughs> like, how much less money the Chiefs and the NFL would be set to make? And so it's like the only reason you actively exclude people from a talent pool for any position um, that look a certain way is racism or sexism or um, transphobia, homophobia, whatever it is, whatever the label is, like you can't get around it. And people have to stop ducking and dodging and trying to find these alternative, you know, reasons for what the issues are. Like that is it. Like we have to embrace that, accept that and find ways to combat it. Um, and, And so you can't, you can't fix an issue until you acknowledge what the issue is. And so that's my, you know, kind of thesis from this project. And, you know, we'll see if people, you know, want to do that in the coming years. They haven't shown me any reason to believe they will, but um, hopefully they do. So we can see some some progress, not just in the NFL, but, you know, in America and the, and the world as a whole. For sure, for sure. Wise words, man. Big fan of your work here. Big fan of you. Rooting for you. I'm going to be following you during your path. You got a fan in us. Welcome back anytime you want to hop on, man. It's been a pleasure. Like I said, this is an incredible project. Highly recommend it to all our listeners. Go check it out. All right, Deshaun Reed, thank you so much. Check his work out at at The Athletic. And please go check out Between the Lines podcast. It does have its own feed, uh, like you said now. All the episodes are out, all five of them. Brilliant podcast. Um, Thanks so much for hopping on with us and being so generous with your time, man. We really appreciate it. And like Tyler said, we're all rooting for you for sure. For sure, for sure. Hell yeah. I'm a boy. Thank you. Appreciate you, dog. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Nikki Glaser Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glaser Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glaser Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glaser Podcast to start listening.